Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Calling all surgical education junkies, Behind the Knife is looking to add three new fellows to our team this year. We are thrilled to be adding these positions as we've got big plans for the future and want you to be a part of them. We're working on countless projects that will make a real impact on surgical education, like our trauma surgery video atlas, comprehensive student curriculum, global surgery and innovation podcast series, and our specialty oral board reviews. We're looking for enterprising surgical residents to take the bull by the horns, to build something new and exciting, and to innovate. You will benefit from ample support from the Behind the Knife team, the use of our brand new digital education platform, and access to all of our resources, including illustrators, video editing, and more. Get your name out there and build your CV by being part of the number one surgery podcast in the world. You will even get paid for your work on choice projects. We are offering a two-year fellowship starting July 2024 and ending in June 2026. Only residents beginning their two-year academic development time will be considered, and the residents, institutions, and mentors must approve of this fellowship. Check out the show notes for the application link. All applications are due March 25th. Hello and welcome back Behind the Knife listeners to part three of this special series on pelvic exenteration surgery for locally advanced and recurrent rectal cancer. This four-part series is brought to you by Behind the Knife and the team here at the Department of Colorectal Surgery at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, or RPA as we know locally here in Sydney, Australia. My name is Killian Brown and I'm a colorectal surgery fellow at RPA. And once again, I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Jacob Waller, who is a registrar and advanced trainee in general surgery, as well as Professor Michael Solomon, who's the head of the pelvic exenteration program here at RPA. For each of the four episodes in this series, we've invited a different international expert in exenteration surgery to join us for the discussion. And today I'd like to welcome Dr. Oliver Peacock. Dr. Peacock is a colorectal surgeon and assistant professor at the Department of Colon and Rectal Surgery at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in the US. Following surgical training in the UK, Ollie completed fellowships in advanced colorectal surgical oncology at Peter McCallum Cancer Center in Melbourne, Australia, and then at MD Anderson, where he stayed on to join the faculty. Ollie has an academic and clinical interest in recurrent rectal cancer and exenteration surgery. And so Ollie, welcome to the episode. Thanks for your time and thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. So today's part three of this series. In episodes one and two, we covered the general principles of exenteration surgery as well as anterior compartment resections. And so be sure to check those out if you miss them. But today we're talking specifically about locally advanced primary and recurrent rectal tumors, which invade posteriorly towards the sacrum and laterally out into the pelvic sidewall. And so as always, we'll kick things off with a case. So. There's a 63-year-old woman presented with iron deficiency anemia and is referred to you after having had a colonoscopy which demonstrated an ulcerated sequel tumour and biopsy confirms adenocarcinoma. Staging scans show a bulky tumour in the cecum with no distant metastases and you take the patient to the operating theatre, Jake, for a planned laparoscopic right colectomy. Unfortunately, intraoperatively, you find that there's a bulky tumor in the cecum, but it's fixed into the pelvis, extensively adhering to the upper rectum and the pelvic sidewall. So what would you do from here, Jake? 
I think this is a, a difficult situation to find yourself in. It's important to remember that as part of any oncological resection that we need to make an early assessment of whether or not there's any new metastatic disease since we've, we've had our staging performed. So making an assessment of the abdominal cavity and making, looking for any extra deposits that might've popped up or were missed on the staging scans. And then it's very important before we start dividing any major structures to make a decision about whether or not this tumor is going to be resectable. In this patient where the tumor's fixed to the pelvic sidewall, and in particular concern about the iliac vessels, it's going to be difficult to get it out with a clear margin and probably needs referral to a specialist or tertiary center. I think the other question that I'd need to ask myself in this situation is whether or not there's a, a risk of this patient obstructing in the near future. With such locally advanced disease, they're probably going to be a candidate for some neoadjuvant therapy and whether or not we divert this patient before closing them is something that definitely needs to be considered. Might obviously arrange repeat staging with an MRI to, to assess their pelvic viscera and the sidewall structures and, and have a discussion with the patient and the patient's family about the findings and the next steps from here. Okay, so this is the MRI scan that you've arranged. What can you see here, Jake? On these images, there's a bulky tumor that's on the right-hand side of the pelvis. It, it seems like it could be involving the rectum posteriorly, and maybe this is something it's been misdiagnosed as, as a sequel primary, but is actually arising from the rectum. And then on the image on the left-hand side of the screen there, the main concern is the tumor abutting that, that large vessel, probably the external iliac vein. It's going to be a complex resection to get this tumor out. Okay, so Ollie, what do you think about this MRI? Sounds like this patient has sidewall involvement. What are your initial thoughts? Well, first of all, I'm glad that we've gone big here because everything in Texas is always bigger. So I'm glad to see that. So I think what are the key strategies whenever you're faced with a cancer? We know that one of our primary aims is to achieve an R0 resection. So I'm looking at this MRI and it is not a standard right colectomy. It's involving several structures or potentially, so I'm now thinking in my head, what are those potential structures that are involved and how am I going to potentially achieve that R0 resection? So we know that this is a very locally advanced tumor. And the question is, is this is not something that we just have a go at and try and remove. But we want, you know, we know that the outcomes for patients, not only is it to achieve an R0 resection, but also our best shot at this is to do it right the first time. So there is no harm in what Jake said in terms of just saying, look, let's maybe even close up and get them to another center to be reviewed. But I do think that this patient, and Jake's already alluded to some of the structures that are already involved. And so personally speaking, if the patient is not developing any obstructive symptoms or has been diverted prior, I would be considering some neoadjuvant therapy first to help me to achieve that clear resection margin or give me the best chance. And whether that's you give some neoadjuvant chemotherapy first or whether you think about radiation first in this setting, that would seem very reasonable. In terms of the lateral compartment itself, I think we have to think about the key structures in that area. And we mentioned vascular. So that's certainly we need to see where the course of the major vessels are. And in that, you have to decide, are the vessels that are potentially involved, are they ones that can just be ligated and resected on block or are they ones that also require reconstruction so i'm not particularly worried when it comes to the internal iliac vessels but obviously if they're the external common they would require potentially reconstruction 
depending on whether it's the artery or the vein. And then also I need to consider, and this is where I need to see the whole MRI to course the structures. So particularly thinking, where is the ureter in this as well? Because that may also require an on-block resection and we may need to take some additional tissues. So that's kind of how I would be thinking of this at this stage. Fantastic. So let's just step away from the case for a moment and review the anatomy of the posterior and lateral pelvic compartments. So Jake, how do you conceptualize this area of the body? I think as demonstrated in the image on the right there, I think a good place to start with the posterior and lateral compartments is the, the lumbar sacral triangle or the triangle of Marcel. This is the triangle which is bordered by the psoas muscle laterally, the body of L5 medially and the, the sacral ala inferiorly and really acts as the landmark for where a lot of the major neurovascular structures enter that pelvic sidewall. It's a good way to think of it. It's, it's sort of the apex of where the posterior and lateral compartments really meet and join and that's where, where these areas intersect. I think moving from essentially deep superficial, when you're moving from the pelvis into the sidewall, we come across the peritoneum overlying the sidewall. Then as Ollie mentioned, we will encounter the ureter as the most superficial. Then we get to the vasculature in terms of the iliac arteries, which will be in front of the veins. Then the pelvic fascial layers, sacral nerve roots and sciatic nerve will then start to become posteriorly. And then you get onto the muscles, the bones, and their ligaments, in particular, the sacrospinous and the sacrotuberous ligaments coursing through this region. So, Prof, you've operated in this area more than most. Do you have any tips or tricks? How do you help your fellows understand this complex 3D topographical anatomy? Probably just saying it and dissecting it, I'd say. But I think the when we started doing this in the 90s it was really an area where no one had gone much before so no one really we sort of knew anatomy a little bit but we didn't know surgically how to explore it and i think probably when you're starting i would say just go don't dive into the where the tumor is immediately go out and get vascular control and get common eye get used to dissecting the common iliac artery and vein ureter much higher up follow them down go being on a ligament, move back at the external iliac vein and artery, get control of those. And one of the, I guess, the secrets of difficult dissections, and it's actually the way I do lateral uh, lymph node dissection, is I go lateral to the veins, down onto the bone, and come all the way down, freeing the nodes, in that case, off the bone, so that when you come through the normal approach, it's actually all free and just drops out. And that plane lateral to the vein and artery is actually... A really easy plane it's never been dissected before even in recurrence and it's you're on the side of the medial border of psoas and then you get onto iliac bone and then move your way up i think that's a good gateway to entering the entry point is this triangle of marseille which we wrote about years ago and then getting the ureter floating the idea is to float the important structures the common and external vessels out of the way and the best way to float them out of the way if you're doing a full lateral compartment is to tie off the internal iliacs and that floats everything out of the way. It's also the way to expose the lumbosacral trunk, which is just uh, deep to the confluence of the internal uh, iliac veins and the external iliac veins. So it's a very easy way to find the lumbosacral trunk. I think as we've gone on further, we don't necessarily do that whole dissection up high. We come a little bit 
further down, we might uh, preserve the uh, gluteal vessels just to give vascularity to the gluteus muscle, although I think that's a bit over uh, discussed. I've never had an infarcted gluteus muscle after tying off the gluteal vessels, so I think we overdo that one. But it's all anatomy, really, surgical anatomy. I would say in that first case that I would assume if they did a colonoscopy, they would have seen a rectal tumor on the way through if they got to the cecum. And even if it's an upper rectum or a cecum, I'm not sure I would use radiotherapy. I might use chemotherapy because the radiotherapy does make the surgery just a little bit trickier in terms of healing. But as Ollie said to me, in that case, it would be the common and the external vessels and the ureter, which would be the wild card in that case then. So you needed to be prepared for both a reimplantation, Buari type flap for that ureter uh, and vascular reconstruction uh, in that operation. Okay. In terms of the contraindications and indications for exenteration surgery in this area, I mean, we've talked in previous episodes about, you know, the limits. And so, Prof, could you perhaps comment on the historical contraindications, both in terms of the posterior and lateral compartment and how things have changed over time and where we are now? Well, I think in the 1990s, when we started doing these for a current rectal cancer, everything was a contraindication because I think the data was so poor, the mortality was, you know, in different studies, 10 to 30% in hospital mortality and morbidity extremely high, and there were very few survival studies showing a benefit. So I think probably all recurrence was regarded as a contraindication, I think, for the units that started doing it in those times. It was involvement of the lateral vessels, including the internal aortic vessels, certainly the common and externals, sciatic nerve, major nerve involvement, and posterior bone involvement really were all contraindications in the 90s. I don't think any of them are now at all. And Ollie, is that a similar sort of situation in the US? Are these sorts of resections generally referred to small number of specialized centers? Yeah, I mean, as we know, like in rectal cancer, we're seeing less and less kind of central recurrences now just because of the advent of true TME surgery and we are seeing more and more kind of these lateral compartment involvements. Uh, in the US, there are specialist centers that do uh, have specialist interests in kind of locally advanced or recurrent rectal cancers. It is a little bit dependent on sometimes the center that the patient presents at and the level of comfort, however, of the surgeon and the multidisciplinary team that are going to treat this patient. So some are treated in perhaps centers that don't do as many of these cases. But generally speaking, we do encourage patients to be referred to those specialist centers to be seen and to be evaluated on treatment recommendations and receptability. Okay, so this patient at the time of that exploratory surgery uh, had a diverting ileostomy and following discussion at a multidisciplinary team meeting, the recommendation was for long-course chemoradiotherapy during which, however, the patient had multiple presentations with urinary sepsis due to an obstructed ureter on the right, and the decision uh, was to proceed directly to surgery. As we've mentioned and emphasized in this episode, R0 resection or clear margins, really the ultimate technical goal of this operation. So let's talk a little bit about how we'll get this tumor out with clear margins. Ollie, this patient with sidewall involvement on the right. Can you tell us a little bit about the technical approach? Well, I think Prof really alluded to this earlier in a very helpful and clear manner. 
But when it comes to resecting these kind of locally advanced tumors, it's really important to kind of find normal anatomy first. I think sometimes we're in danger of just honing in straight away on the tumor itself and actually trying to find your normal anatomy in your normal plane because in the presence of a tumor, sometimes that plane is distorted and it's not normal uh, because you have frank invasion, for example, into another structure. So that is uh, how I, I would approach this as well is finding that normal anatomy and then kind of working down and then perhaps trying to find not normal anatomy below it as well and working upwards. So particularly when it comes to the lateral compartment, again, Prof has already mentioned this, I'm very much trying identify both my ureter and my and the vessels. The vessels are really helpful, particularly getting out wide on the lateral side wall. So for me, it's, again, it, depending on exactly what level we're saying the tumor is involving will determine how far proximally we have to go in terms of getting that control, because it's really important when you're dealing with vessels to have proximal and distal control as well. But certainly... The external iliac vein is helpful for me in identifying that to dropping into the lateral side wall to get way out onto obturator internus and things like that once I get further down. So it is identifying your normal anatomy first and then working from there and having the control of the vessels and dissecting out the important structures that you've got to be aware of. You know, you also do have to think about, for example, in a a locally advanced sequel tumor, you got to think about the nerves if we're going really lateral in terms of just even thinking about kind of thermal nerve, things like that as well when you're getting close to the psoas muscle. And so I think that's kind of how I would approach it. I don't know, Prof, you have anything else that you want to kind of highlight? I think the broad principle that you're saying, which is I've always said is circumnavigate the difficult area, leave that to last because if you start hitting veins and you've got no control or you're not ready to get a, a you know you need an exit strategy sometimes in the pelvis when you get uncontrollable bleeding so the best way to minimize trouble is to take on the normal anatomy first and circumnavigate the most difficult area which in this case would be the lateral compartment so go below work your way back sometimes I even like in this case i probably would have transected the rectum and done a retrograde yeah. tme up up to this level um so that that was ready got the bladder free, taken the distal ureter if it was, obviously if it was stented, it's involved. So disconnected the ureter, disconnected the proximal one, got the vascular, as we talked about directly, the common externals, and then come down to this area that for those that are confused on the anatomy, this is the left side, not the right side. So it's not, hopefully not this case, uh, but you're seeing that what would be a very similar to the, the section to the other side on the left side. The ureter is still intact, and the com and the internal iliacs are still have just been vessel looped. And on the right side, they've been tied off. You can see the yellow is around S1, which is the lower one, and L5 just near near the stump of the internal iliac. So is tendon underneath the uh, external iliac vein, and the I think the arrow is pointing to the obturator nerve further down. But it would be a similar dissection to that, I think, in this case on the other side. So. Ollie, you've done a lot of work on vascular reconstruction at your time at Peter McCallum. Can you tell us a little bit about the options for this patient who likely going to require a common or external iliac vascular resection? 
This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. So again, I think the key is when you're assessing these patients, it's working out whether there's a true plane between the tumor and the vessel. If there's a nice fat pad or fat plane, then the likelihood is it should be free. There's then abutment, and I think if it's abutting, you should always have people available to help you when it comes to, for example, vascular resection and reconstruction. And then obviously then there's kind of frank involvement of the vessels. So that is a, a very helpful principle to think through when it comes to planning and who to have available to help you. You know, I am not skilled enough to be able to, I can resect the vessels, but I would certainly need help in terms of reconstruction. So in terms of then how we might approach this, the question then you've got to ask yourselves is at what level is the vascular involvement? So is it the aorto axis or is it kind of more in the kind of internal or external iliac vessels? So if it's internal iliac vessels, then I don't, I just plan to reset them and there's no need to reconstruct them. And as Prof's already spoken about, it doesn't really matter kind of what level you tend to go at. We do try to preserve the superior gluteal vessels if we can, but again, I'm not really sure there's much to gain from that. It just makes it a bit more technically challenging, I found, to be honest. When it comes to the common iliacs and the external iliacs, then obviously resection, and then it's about planning how you're going to reconstruct it. So your options with reconstruction are, you've got your autologous reconstruction, so that's where you use the patient's own tissue. Um, so, for example, using the patient's vein, for example, uh, versus using kind of a synthetic or a, a biological graft um, to help uh, reconstruct the vessels. I might ask Prof to just comment on vascular reconstruction and, and specifically, are there any situations where you don't need to reconstruct the common or external iliac vessels? I think when you've got an occluded vein, particularly common or common external junction, and you've got a lot of collaterals. One of our biggest problem in reviewing reconstructed veins was vein thrombosis and pormeambulus as a result of that. So they do tend to thrombose. So what we've been intending to do is actually tie them off. And even if the collaterals around the inguinal ligament, I'll even tie a primary off, ex except the phlegmasia in the post-operative period, which, which actually decreases very quickly. But that's a, a lesser risk than a thrombosis and having to anticoagulate an empty pelvis and the risk of thrombosis. So we've, in veins, we've tended to ligate the common iliac vein or distal external iliac vein just above the confluence. And, and I think the broad principle is of, of what Ollie was saying is it's very different, a recurrence to a primary. I think a primary with a fat pad, we would dissect the, the vessels free. I think a recurrence, if it's abutting it, we would always take the vessels and if we've already made that decision, then the options, and I think we've been doing it at the same time, but Peter Mack wrote a very good paper about uh, doing crossover grafts, or what we've also done is axillofemoral bypass and ligated it off a week before the operation so that you actually, you don't leave the leg ischemic for a long time during a, a long resection. I think that's been a very wise thing for when you're sure you're going to uh, tie off the artery, because then, you know, if you do it, 
one or two hours, then you're going to get an ischemic leg, uh, despite them originally saying it's a three-hour period. So arteries, I don't really know. We've tried everything. You can see bovine pericardium there uh, of the artery in the vein in the middle one. They're autologous ones. That's actually a reconstructed artery in a reconstructed vein on the right-hand side using the superficial femoral vein, but doing a spiral graft. In other words, you, you make it, you splay it open, and then you sew it. It takes a long time. If you're going to have a long life, then an autologous one is a is a good one to use, I think. That was a really helpful point about primary versus recurrent. It's just they're very different tissue planes, I found, because often much more heavily treated in the recurrent setting versus the primary setting. So again, I think, it, yeah, if there's abutment in a recurrent setting, then it's you're going to need to resect. I think I just wanted to highlight how important that was as a as a statement. I think when we changed our policy into for recurrent rectal cancer, if you've had a butter that we would resect it and we got our R zeros up, I think from sort of late thirties, uh, early on in our experience, up to around sixty eight percent in our later series of uh, vascular resections. So I think, and that was with a policy exactly of that in recurrence, which is if it if you're in any doubt, don't scrape it off. Just just take the vessels. And then often actually like it's not a case of just trying to chip it off the vessel because actually there's usually kind of that micro invasion into the blood vessel and you you will get a positive margin so it, you know it's you're better off just resecting it there and then and I think the data that's out there now shows how much better it is to to do that. Okay, so this patient was referred to a specialist center and had a preemptive left to right femoral femoral crossover graft for the artery. And that was done two days prior to resection where she had a, a supralevator type complete soft tissue pelvic exenteration. The tumor was involving the trigone of the bladder as well as the right ureter. And so a, a total cystectomy and a low anterior resection was performed with an on-block right colectomy as well as resection of the entire uh, right vascular system. And the vein was not reconstructed. The artery had a crossover graft. So we might move on to the posterior compartment now. Over to you, Jake. In terms of moving to the, the these posterior recurrences and posterior tumors involving the sacral bone, Ollie, can you just talk to us a little bit about what your options are in terms of sacral resection? So how I would approach this is on an MRI, I'm looking, I'm asking myself specific questions. So is it just pre-sacral fascia involvement? Is there frank invasion into the sacrum? And then at what level is that involvement of the sacrum? Because that will kind of determine how I might approach this. With regard to kind of what our options are, it's for me, it's dependent on exactly where on the sacrum that involvement is or the level of which it is will determine the operative approach that I might use. So you have a prone sacrectomy, which you can obviously see on the left side and that's helpful for getting access to the sacrum particularly versus doing this in a lithotomy position. And then there's also where you don't do a full sacrectomy, but you can kind of take the anterior cortex of the, the sacrum if you can ensure that clear margin. So again, when I consider do I need to reset bone or not, it's about how am I going to achieve this clear reception margin. So personally speaking, I usually do a sacrectomy in the lithotomy position if I'm kind of at S3 level or below. 
if we are above that, then that's where we would tend to go more of a, a dormal approach and then go flip the patient to a prone sacrectomy. But again, it's variable in, in different institutions. Prof, is there any other comment you'd like to make on patients that potentially need a, a prone or these high sacrectomies? Well, firstly, I completely agree with Ollie and we've gone away from prone uh, for sacrectomy to doing most of them more than 80% in abdominal alothotomy high as well. If the high ones are centrally involved, which they tend to be, uh, particularly if they're inside the foramina, we'll tend to do an anterior cortex come down to where the junction of S3 and uh, S2 is, which is where really the tail starts below the sacroiliac joint. Then we'll take the whole sacrum off through that to an abdominal alothotomy. So we'll do an anterior cortex of the upper sacrum and then a complete sacrectomy in the abdominal lithotomy. And the advantage of the abdominal lithotomy is it, is it gives you much better lateral approach at synchronous resection. So you can actually be more lateral. We'd go prone for S1, S2, where it's either crossing the sacroiliac joint or extensively through the bone. In other words, uh, most of the ones we would be doing are for recurrent rectal, which doesn't tend to invade deep into the bone. It just is attached to the presacral fascia and the uh, periosteum, where so you don't really need to be deep. If it's primary bone tumors, then we'll tend to be doing uh, complete sacroectomies prone. So if you're doing prone, you need to do the whole abdominal operation, even mobilize your VRAM flap and leave it in the pelvis. Do you mobilize the bladder, make the conduit, bring out the colostomy and close, and then go prone? So you've finished with your abdominal uh, approach, then we usually pack off the pelvis with a sponge and around the tumor and then turn prone. You can do a prone first, which we've done in a couple of cases if you're punching out a central sacrum, but it does bleed a little bit. It's actually the ones we've lost more control is when we've done prone first and then come in through the abdomen and it starts bleeding from the posterior vessels and you don't have any access from the abdomen until you've really freed the whole thing. So I've, I've stopped doing that. It seemed like a good thing at the time. but Yeah, I have to. I definitely have a preference for doing an abdominal component first for that very reason. You know that you've got all the, con well, majority of the control feed you need. They're quite challenging cases. And I suppose the other um, issue with a prone first approach is that just that small possibility of occult metastatic disease that might stop you proceeding that you may not have uh, the ability to assess in a prone and then you get a surprise when you turn them around, do you think, Prof? Yeah, look, I, we don't often get surprises these days with scanning, but and locally recurrence particularly doesn't tend to have peritoneal disease and so it's not, I guess, primaries, yes, would be true, but primaries don't tend to involve the sacrum as much as the recurrences. But yes, I think absolutely. So but both of you seem to be advocating for a single phase abdominal approach where feasible and then prone is obviously a bit more fiddly closing everything up and flipping the patient. But for those higher and more intensively involved sacral tumors, it seems to be unavoidable. Ollie, in terms of your services at MD Anderson, are you doing the, the bony resections yourselves or are you getting help from orthopedics or spinal surgeons? I'll speak for speaking on behalf of all the group, but generally speaking, uh, as the colorectal team, we're happy to perform a sacrectomy at S3 or below ourselves. Where we do advocate for orthopedic slash neurosurgery involvement is a higher sacrectomy, 
just because of the fecal sac that you have to consider. So that is often where we will go to prone because that is the preference of our kind of orthopedic and um, neurosurgical colleagues that are here to help us. So it is about your level of comfort. I don't think there's anything wrong in asking orthopedics to help you even with a lower sacrectomy, um, as long as it's done appropriately and safely. But generally speaking, I'm happy getting the hammer and chisel out for an S3 or below. Uh, I'm not confident tying off a fecal sac. I've just put on the screen for those watching the video, some of the techniques that we've just mentioned. Uh, these are the maneuvers which can be used to preserve sacral nerve roots. So high anterior cortical sacrectomy or a, or a longitudinal hemisacrectomy or segmental resections as Prof mentioned. And we'll put some links in the show notes to some of the technical descriptions for those who want to read more. So Prof and Ollie, that probably brings us to the end of the episode. We've covered a lot. Any final take-home messages or comments on posterior and lateral compartment resections? I think just the principle, particularly for a current rectal cancer, I think advanced primary is really the, the, the local colorectal surgeon or general surgeon has really got to make their own decisions in some ways. But if you understand re recurrent rectal cancer, you've got to understand it's an extra TME disease. It's not it's not a TME operation. And so involvement of the presacral fascia by the recurrence is almost invariable for a posterior. And if you just shave it off, you'll finish up with positive margins every time and you haven't helped the patient. So even if with the radiologist says, oh, I can't see it infiltrating the cortex or the medulla, it's still involved if it's a recurrence. And you've got to take that anterior cortex as a minimum for a posterior recurrence. So I think for a current disease, you've just got to think it's an extra TME. It's not a TME operation anymore. And I think actually that slide sort of shows a recurrence, which was involving the sacrum at the back. You can see the sciatic nerve and the lumbar sacral plexus coming out and the pubic bone and ischial bone. And that's a pretty advanced one all around. But that's the plane you need to be comfortable in recurrence. Advanced primary, very different disease. Ollie, any final comments? Yeah, I actually, I had a, I had a question for Prof actually in terms of, so one thing we haven't really covered in the lateral compartment are the kind of sacral nerve roots. And so, you know, we do know that we are, we can reset those. Where I've sometimes struggled is, is trying to achieve that negative resection margin on the sciatic nerve and the perineural invasion that you don't necessarily always, you know, you're not going to see unless you, once you've got it under the microscope. So just wondering with Prof's expertise, are there some warning signs that he sees on an MRI that would say, hey, actually, perhaps this sciatic nerve is not resectable? I think uh, the sciatic nerve is probably the, the exception a little bit because it's often hard to... I think the MRI's got to guide you. If the MRI says it's there, you've got to take... Certainly, if you take the medial part of it, the medial part of the uh, L5 and S1 is actually sensory. And I only know this by cutting half of them. They tend to keep their motor function if you just take the, and you do that with a scalpel blade. Again, once you've mobilized it and you've got control above and below. But the other thing that's always been a misconception is you can walk without your sciatic nerve and you just, they just lock their knee as they land and work and wear an ankle support. So patients can walk quite well without a, a unilateral um, sciatic nerve. So, and, and the other thing about most sciatic real infiltrations have already got sciatica. They've got pains that are actually in the reflection and some of them, particularly in recurrences, already have start to get a foot drop. So I think if they've got those symptoms, then you definitely take the whole lot. Uh, otherwise, it's really dissecting it all out so that you can then see. 
and and once it's mobile, it will sort of as you as you freed the rest of the tumor and you do it last, you can see it's sort of being puckered, puckered into it. And if there's any puckering, you need to take it for recurrence. I'm not sure I've answered your question very well there. No, I mean, it's a helpful point, but it, I was just uh, alluding to perhaps some of the, um, like, you know, the neuroparameter, if you see some swelling in that, how high are we actually ligating that sciatic nerve to get that kind of clear reception margin? Yeah, look, I think the one of the, problems in terms of recurrence is tumors that grow along the, the nerve and you can't, can't often see that right. and, um, on MRIs. So I think if you've decided to take the nerve, you should take it back to the foramina because there's no disadvantage from going back to the foramina, but they do tend to hit the highway of the, the neural tubes and grow, and grow up. And if they grow and it's a positive margin there, then that's, that's bad. And often it, it probably a relative contraindication if the MRI person says, look, it's growing along the S2 nerve up into the spinal canal, then your probability of getting a clear margin, even at the S2 level, is quite low. Yeah, I think that's kind of the strategy we've been adopting here, and it, that's why it's just helpful to hear another, you know, an, an expert's opinion on that. So I appreciate it. Sorry for hijacking the Behind the Knife series to get my own helpful tips. Not at all. That's what it's for. All right. Well, thank you, Professor Solomon, and Oliver Peacock for joining us today and your insights. And we'll look forward to everyone joining us next time for the final episode on reconstruction and recovery. See you then. Thanks, Gillian. Thanks, Ollie. Thanks, Jay. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate it. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.